Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Most leaders motivate others by boasting of their accomplishments. They talk about past goals they have achieved. They reflect on how effective they were at leading others to meet those goals. They praise others for their efforts. They explain the virtue of their future goals. And they repeat the message over and over again to motivate their teams. But what if your leader only spoke of his failures and sufferings? What would you think of him? How much confidence would you have in his leadership? What if he kept repeating his message of failure? Would you remain loyal to him? Would you follow his instructions? Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 131 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Repeat, repeat, repeat. When I sit down with one of my kids to scold them, they always say, Papa, I got it, I heard you. And my immediate response is, Are you sure? Let me repeat myself. And after repeating myself, oh, about 20 or 30 times, they begin to see that there are other punishments that are much nicer than having a priest for a father. (laughs) You don't necessarily have to be a priest to use this method because I use this method too. And I say, I know we've had this conversation before and I wish we could stop having this conversation, (laughs) but it looks like we're going to have to have it again. I don't think you should be doing things this way. Repeat, repeat, repeat. There is a saying in the Byzantine liturgy again and again, in peace. It is peaceful because the teacher is speaking and the disciple is listening. That's the key. Once again, we are disciples of Paul. Paul is repeating himself. And what does he keep saying? Paul is conveying how he is undergoing some kind of suffering. In the last chapter, he listed all different kinds of suffering that he could be going through or that Christians in general might subject themselves to. But throughout this book and through 1 Corinthians, he described the ways that he has been suffering. And it seems that some people in Corinth are losing their confidence in Paul because he keeps getting punished and smacked down and shut up for trying to preach. And it seems like this is actually starting to be convincing to the Corinthians that, oh, maybe Paul isn't as great as he thinks he is. Maybe if Paul were all good, he wouldn't keep running into problems with the law. The people in the law are not just crazy. So maybe they've got a point with Paul. Maybe Paul is up to something. He's not speaking from the perspective of the classic victim mentality. Paul does not have a martyr's complex. Paul is shaming. When you are in a position of authority, when you're a teacher in our cultural setting, and you talk about how much work you're doing and how difficult it is and how you've been whipped and what you've endured, people don't hear it through the lens of shame. 
they hear it as, who does he think he is? Everybody suffers. Nobody hears, shame on us, because he's made this sacrifice, and now we're not listening to the very thing he sacrificed himself to deliver to us. I mean, one thing you really should notice, the thing that he doesn't say, Paul never blames. He doesn't say, I was scourged because these idiots don't appreciate me. That's not what he's saying. I was imprisoned because people just don't understand how smart I am. He never blames anyone. Oh, the Romans, they just don't appreciate me. Or, oh, the Gentiles just have it out for me. Poor me. The only times he feels sad is when he says, Hey, Corinthians, why are you not willing to suffer like me? That's the only thing he'll complain about. Aren't you getting the message? Don't you understand? Isn't it registering with you? Is everything I'm doing in vain? It's a classic rhetorical question by Paul. That's what's on the line. So once again, he is examining this question of priority. This is what is consistently repeated. Are you about the teaching or are you about you? If you are about you, you're going to talk about Paul and complain about Paul and analyze Paul because your ego is thriving in function of your perception of other egos. But if you have the correct priority, you're not going to worry about Paul. You're going to pay attention to what Paul is saying. It's so basic. It's not how you say it. It's what you say that counts. I want to repeat that because people don't get the message. It's not how you say something. It's what you say. And the true disciple only cares about the what, not the how. And Paul wants everyone to understand the what of the suffering, which is the gospel. That's the only reason he's bringing it up. And he says as much. The only reason he's brought up his suffering is not to condemn the Gentiles or condemn the people who are persecuting him, but only so that his disciples will see what this is, will see the suffering and get the teaching from it. But Father Mark, not everyone can study Hebrew and study Greek. Maybe so. I don't know if that's true, but let's just assume so for a moment. I don't think there's anybody I know in the church who can't work at a soup kitchen. I don't think there's anybody I know in the church who can't reach out to a Muslim neighbor. Everybody can do something. So Paul is giving them an avenue. He's giving them a shortcut. If they would just live this way, it would be enough, and they won't even meet him there, let alone open their heart, meaning their mind, to the understanding of the instruction. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, he's been telling you and repeating over and over again that you have to to conform your earthen vessel to the content of the message. If you don't, you adulterate the message and you defile your flesh because left to its own will, the flesh corrupts. It's a beautiful metaphor, this idea of the corruption of behavior and the decay of your body. And the defilement is very specific because we've seen throughout Paul's writing what this is. Defilement is your desire to do your own thing, to follow your own ego, to follow your own biological impulses. And this is going to defile both your flesh and your spirit because it's the spirit that is trying to motivate you to live 
according to the gospel, which is an eternal spirit, which is a godly spirit. The only way that your body can actually have life is by following the spirit that you get from understanding the gospel. Now here in verse 2, they insert a reference to the hearts of Paul's addressees. Listen to verse 2 in English. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. But in the original Greek, it does not say, make room for us in your hearts. It simply says, accept us, or make room for us, full stop. Accept us. But this isn't about a big kumbaya session. This is once again about the teaching. Understand here, we wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. This is interesting that Paul would be saying this. Who is he saying this to? What is he responding to? To me, when I read this, it sounds like he's responding to some potential attacks against his character, that he did wrong someone, that he did corrupt someone, that he did take advantage of someone. And this is why I said in the beginning that it seems that there is some gossip or some evil talk about Paul. And what he's saying is, show me the person that I corrupted and I wronged. I didn't wrong anybody. And he said, you don't have any basis in your condemnation of me, except that you have this tendency still to want to go with the authorities. You can't go with the authorities. You have to go with the teaching and you have to go with what's real and look at what is happening. You cannot find it. I do not speak to condemn you for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, which means my intention, my thought is not to condemn you, but to give you instruction so that you can live together with us. This is what I want for you, but you are condemned. When Paul says, I do not speak to condemn you, you cannot read it and say kumbaya. You should read it and shake in your boots. That's Paul's way of saying the Assyrians are at the gates of Jerusalem. Get your act together. When your child is taking a class from a teacher to take an exam that's going to be graded by someone else, the teacher is not the one who's going to be judging you. The teacher is not the one who's going to be grading you. But it makes a lot of sense to adhere to whatever that teacher says because that teacher knows what he's doing. Here, what he's saying is, I'm not trying to cut you off. I'm not trying to say you guys are a bunch of no goods. What I'm trying to do here is trying to teach you so that we can live and die together. Like you say, Father, my intention is that we live and die together. I'm trying to build a community where we're building each other up, where we're supporting each other with this teaching. And you're neglecting the teaching. You're accepting the evil talk about me. And the community is going to suffer as a result. So stick with me here. I'm saying these things because you're acting incorrectly, not because I intend to get rid of you or to cut you off. Cutting you off is up to God. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. A better translation might be great is my boldness in you. Confidence in you implies that Paul is placing his faith in the disciple. But the same word in Greek Parisia also occurs in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in that context he talks about having such a hope and using great boldness in our speech so what Paul is lauding here is the boldness of his speech at work in his disciples you see again how translation is so insidious 
Because people will say, well, don't you see? Paul is giving them encouragement too. He doesn't just come to criticize them, Father Mark. No, you're not getting it. Because in Galatians, he says very clearly, my confidence isn't in you. It's in the very thing I'm speaking. And here in 2 Corinthians, his confidence is in that which is the source of his boasting, which is the word that he's trying to get them to embrace. And he is hopeful, and he is confident, and he is overflowing with joy in all his affliction, which is what he's trying to say. And the funny thing is, even if they don't accept the teaching, he can still rejoice because somebody will, because that's how it works. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fears within. Again, this is what makes me think that there is some evil talk in the community because he's saying conflicts without. Yes, we keep running into problems with the authorities, but the fears within, you guys are ready to abandon me and go along with this evil talk just so you don't get caught up in the suffering that I've been caught up in. Look, you've been called to suffer. That's why he said I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction in the previous verse. We want you to be able to suffer with us. But if you're afraid to suffer, you're going to go with the powers of this world, the powers of death, and not actually believe in the power that we are trying to show that our confidence is in. It's interesting the way you read that, fears within... In other words, you think Paul is talking about himself, but he's talking about the body politic of the church. When he says, we were afflicted on every side, they were afflicted by the fears within. Paul is bumping up against the leaders of the community. His own people are undermining him. His own people are undermining him because of their fear. And this is why Paul has to build their confidence up, but not a hollow confidence of, I'm okay, you're okay, but a confidence of, you're going to be ready to suffer, and I am confident the suffering will come to you. It's very much like this beautiful literary motif that appears in science fiction programs about spaceships and in naval programs about submarines at sea, where the captain has to make a difficult decision. The second-in-command voices his or her objection, but then there's this moment where a decision has to be made. Okay, you disagree with me. Are you going to support the decision? Yes or no? Are you with me? Yes or no? And if the first officer is not with the captain, the captain now has to contend with the fears within that undermine the mission. Yes, we know that everybody can follow orders, but I need you to make a decision to be on board with what I'm saying, irrespective of how you feel. And Paul is dealing with this insubordination. It's great, too, because he undermines the self-righteousness of his own community who are saying, Paul is being afflicted by the Romans. Paul is being afflicted by the Romans. Paul is being afflicted by the Romans. And Paul says, yes, and by you. And that's why he gets no rest in Macedonia. He gets no rest in Macedonia, not just because of the Romans, but because of his own people. They're giving him heck, too. But God who comforts the humbled. I don't like this word depressed because again, they are psychologizing to Corinthians and it's irritating. They're trying to make this into a discussion of how Paul feels or what's going on in his head or how to comfort people in their hearts and all this nonsense. Paul is saying that I've been humbled because I've been besieged by all of you, not only the Romans, not only the circumcision party, but the church in Corinth. And only God 
God's teaching comforts him. God comforts me because I know that I'm doing Torah. I know that I'm following his will. That's my only comfort, and it's the only comfort I will accept. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He sent me a disciple who will support my instruction. Now my first officer, my lieutenant, is on the bridge. So I'm less concerned now about your insubordination. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. In this verse, Paul is comforted by Titus because Titus is giving him a report. So he's able to hear, okay, what are you hearing on the ground, Titus? And Titus is like, they're really pretty upset by that letter you wrote to them that, you know, they're torn up. They're trying to figure out what to do. And Paul says, oh, good. They're not just angry at me. They're not just rejecting me, ignoring me. They're sad about it. If they're sad, it means they still care. They still got some skin in the game. Paul is happy that he laid into them and they didn't say, fine, I'm done. I'm leaving the church. The fact that I'm disengaging. I'm done. I don't have to put up with this crap from you, Paul. They didn't say that. They were actually sad because they still had some small, meager ounce of respect for Paul. And so they were stuck on the hook. Yeah, so Paul still got something to work with. Titus came and said they're sad. They actually reacted to the letter. It sounds like there may be a chance that they want to get better. I still got a shot with them, and in this I rejoice. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I'm happy it made you sad. I'm not trying to just depress you and make you hopeless. The point is, I want to make you sad that you didn't act correctly so that you realize the error of your ways, you're ready to move ahead. But here's what I do regret. I regret that I didn't scold you hard enough because it only lasted a little while. People literally extract a verse out where Paul's talking about your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. They make a postcard out of it. But that's not what 2 Corinthians is saying. Paul's ridiculing them. It's like hazing someone and telling them how much you rejoiced and delighted at the way they were miserable when you gave it to them. And then when they started to feel a little better, then you felt sad because you didn't give it to them hard enough because now they're feeling better. Because Paul is the one who is humbled. And why aren't you humbled with him? Paul is trying to humble them. Paul is trying to make them understand the error of their ways. And the fact that Titus, a lieutenant whom Paul can trust, can go in there and find out exactly what's going on, hopefully can put an end to this insubordination against Paul, this judging against Paul, this condemnation of Paul based on what the Gentiles are saying and showing about Paul. And he's saying, no, remain steadfast. Do not give in to what the Gentiles say. Do not give in to your fear. Only trust in God. Only trust in his teaching. And when the Gentiles come for you, only trust in God and only in his teaching. Titus is that guy that you hire into a company who gets a pass from HR to clean house. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. You too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. 
Read the Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.